0: Our text this morning as we hear from the living God in his word is 2nd Samuel chapter 24 verses 1 to 25 Which means we have arrived at the end of our study of Samuel And as we do arrive at the end of that study we come to what one commentator I think rightly describes as one of the most perplexing narratives in Samuel, if not the Old Testament as a whole. I think you'll feel that this morning as we move through this text already. I'm sure you have a number of questions, having heard these 25 verses read that come to your mind. I don't have as many answers as you have questions. But for all the complexity and the mystery that we find in this text, I do think that the point of the final story in Samuel is clear. Because at its core, what I think we find in chapter 24 is an ongoing problem and the anticipation of its solution. I cannot think of a more fitting way to end Samuel than to go, as I will try to do by the end of this sermon, to where that final solution in the book of Samuel points us ultimately. But let me begin on this day by taking a moment first to consider where we were about 14 months ago about exactly 14 months ago, when we began in 1 Samuel. Do you remember the very beginning when we were talking about the last sentence of the book of Judges? (laughs) Judges chapter 21, verse 25, the very last book of the, the very last verse of the Hebrew book that immediately precedes Samuel. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And Israel's apostasy had reached the depths. You remember when we turned the page from Judges to Samuel, or at least in the Hebrew Bible, that's the turn of the page. Ruth isn't there in the Hebrew order. And you come into Samuel and you read there somewhat abruptly (laughs) about a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, who had a wife named Hannah, and Hannah was praying. Hannah was praying for a son. That son would be named Samuel. That son would anoint a king over Israel. Only here at the end of Samuel, I would like us to remember what Samuel himself said one day in Gilgal. In 1 Samuel chapter 12, when Samuel then summoned the people of Israel, if you remember this, to renew the kingdom at Gilgal, that is to renew God's kingdom. This is 1 Samuel chapter 12, verses 13 to 15. Samuel said, Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord but rebel against the commandment of the Lord then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Which is where we find ourselves as we come to the end of Samuel this morning. Because 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1 begins with these words. It says, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them. <laughs> you see, from the end of Judges to the end of Samuel, One thing has changed and one thing basically hasn't. (laughs) There is a king in Israel now. We've gotten to know him rather well over the last year or so. And in that time we've seen that for all that was positive, and there was much, for all that was positive about the reign of David, there was plenty that wasn't so positive. So that here at the end, I think our author may just want for us to go away at the end of Samuel recognizing that this king can't solve the ultimate problem of the people of God. David can't deliver his people from themselves, from the wrath of God. I mean, you, uh, you could argue, probably rightly, that things aren't as bad as they had been in Israel when Hannah was then praying in Shiloh. But neither do they seem especially hopeful when we come to the opening of 2 Samuel 24, right? The ongoing problem hasn't changed. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And I don't expect you to remember this, but 14 months ago in the first sermon in 1 Samuel, here's what we said. I'll just quote myself, I guess, if you don't mind. This was 14 months ago. By the end of 2 Samuel, you'll be disappointed in David Will you be hopeful for the future of God's kingdom? Yes. But will you be confident in the ability of the likes of David to bring it about? Not at all. For as we'll see in the months ahead, God's answer to the crisis facing Israel when we come to the beginning of 1 Samuel isn't ultimately David it's Jesus. That is what I think first or second Samuel chapter 24 is about, dear friends. Because the problem is what the problem has always been. The wrath of God against sin. And the solution? Well, the solution is here. At least the solution is anticipated here. I think we see in this chapter that in the end, it's not what David does at the end of chapter 24. It is what the Lord does, or more accurately, it's what the Lord will do. Because I want to try by the end of this final sermon in Samuel to show you that the final act of David that's recorded in the book of Samuel points us forward all the way to the cross. Now, let's work through the chapter. I'll divide the chapter into three parts, none of which are without impossible difficulties to talk about. I've already suggested as a basic theological outline that there's a problem that's presented at the right at the beginning of the text and there's a solution that's anticipated at the end of the text. And that's the thing I want us to trace as the major arc of the text this morning. But in terms of the narrative and just blocking it off in sections so that you have some hooks to hang your thoughts on, we'll just think about the chapter in these three sections. In verses one to nine would be the first section where we'll talk, focus on the census. And then in verses 10 to 19, we'll focus on the sin. And then in verses 20 to 25, we'll focus on the sacrifice. So the census, the sin, and the sacrifice. So let's begin by focusing on the census in verses 1 to 9. I already read it more than once, but I'll read it once more. This is verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. And among the things that we do not know in this chapter are when this happened and why this happened. We don't know when this happened during the time that David was king. There, there are scholars who suggest it was late in David's reign, that maybe it was the rebellion of Absalom and Sheba that are in view here, and that that's what had kindled the anger of the Lord. But we can't know that. The word again... The beginning of this chapter does suggest that on an earlier occasion, the Lord's anger had been kindled. That could be referring to the incident that we talked about a few weeks ago, just in chapter 21, when those years of famine had come then as a result of Saul's breaking an oath with Gibeonites, if that rings a bell for you. But there could have been other times too. We just don't know when and why this happened These narratives in the conclusion of Samuel are not chronologically arranged. The point is not to tie the events of 2 Samuel 24 to a specific historic failure on the part of Israel or David. This is significant as we wrestle with the point of this chapter, I think, because we have to keep this clear in our minds. The Lord isn't angry at David, per se, when chapter 24 opens. The Lord isn't then exclusively punishing David for the taking of a census in chapter 24 either. That's not all this is about. The Lord's anger was aroused against Israel before any of the events of this chapter took place. So that one commentator puts it, David was now to be the unwitting agent of the Lord's anger against Israel. That's really what seems to be the the strange role that David plays in this text. And I think when we back up a bit from the story in chapter 24, what we may be supposed to realize is that we don't need to know why the Lord was angry. All we need to know is that the Lord was angry. With Israel, we can know that the Lord's anger, we can trust that the Lord's anger was justified. The reason for it in this context perhaps is beside the point. That's why we aren't told what it is. It's unusual, isn't it, in the narratives of Samuel not to be told what the sin is. It's enough somehow to know Israel hasn't done what Samuel told them they would have to do. Instead, they have rebelled against the commandment of the Lord in some way. And now, at the end of the book of Samuel, the Lord's against them. Which is then the thing that that leads us into what, probably, though I think that should be maybe the main issue that we're thinking about, it is that then that leads us into what likely bothers you and me the most in this chapter, though I don't think it's what would have bothered the original readers very much. And that's what the Lord does, right? Right. Because there it is in verse 1, the consequence of his anger against Israel is that he incited David against Israel, saying, go, number Israel and Judah. Which then, of course, seems problematic to us because taking the census evidently is what David then says in verses 10 and verse 17 was his sin here, right? How do we begin to deal with this? Well, let me make three comments that won't solve it, but that might point away a bit forward for us to think about it. First, I'll say I do think it is wrong to understand what we have there in verse one to be a command from the Lord to David. I know it's rendered there as a quote from the Lord. It's even in quotation marks, right? Go number Israel and Judah. But a number, I agree with, with the commentators here who argue that David didn't hear those words, either through a prophet or by any other means. The quote is there to indicate what the Lord incited David to do, but David didn't see this as evidently as something the Lord commanded him to do. right? And the way I come to that is that David goes on to take full responsibility for it. He says it was his sin. And though there's puzzling aspects to this, I can't bring myself to think that it makes sense to say that the Lord commanded David to do this directly and then David does it and then David was guilty for doing it. There must be some other nuance here, I think. So that my second comment then is this, that whatever's going on in the Lord inciting David to number the people There's another layer to it. Because if you look at how the book of Chronicles, or if you know how the book of Chronicles describes this exact event, in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, in verse 1, what that text says, 1 Chronicles 21 verse 1 is, Satan incited David to number Israel. (laughs) Which initially sounds totally different. But what I'd say is that perhaps what Chronicles is doing is giving us another perspective on what it means to say that the Lord incited David. It sort of adds another layer that the Lord evidently permitted or perhaps used the adversary, the Satan, Satan, as his agent, in inciting David to be the agent of his own anger against Israel, which is not me trying to get the Lord off the hook here for you, but it is to lead me to make my third comment, which is that what this makes me think of when I put those two readings together is another book of the Old Testament in which God uses the adversary for his purposes. And that's the book of Job. And if you know anything about Job, you know that in the beginning of that book, God does give permission to Satan to do some pretty terrible things to Job as a way of testing him. Right? I can't prove this for you. There's not a direct linguistic connection or something that would give me a 100% sure way to talk about this, but... Here's my best attempt to explain the nuance of what I think it means when Samuel says the Lord incited David to number the people in 2 Samuel 24. I think it might mean something more along the lines of the Lord was testing David. It's interesting that in 1 Chronicles 29, which is the the final chapter of 1 Chronicles, it comes just before Solomon's anointed as king and David dies. In the midst of David's final prayer in verse 17 that he makes as he's looking ahead to the temple that Solomon's about to build, which is where we're going to end up in this morning in Samuel as well. In the midst of the final prayer of David, verse 17 of 1 Chronicles 29, he prays, I know, my God, that you test the heart. And you have pleasure in uprightness. He says, you test the heart. my best attempt to explain what's happening in second samuel 24 here is to suggest that the lord uses satan to test david in this matter somehow of numbering the people i don't know what the test looked like exactly but i will say that it seems evident that the lord has the clear purpose of doing this to act against israel so again this isn't me trying to make this too easy Because I think we probably have to say that the Lord knew David would fail that test. That when David was incited or provoked or drawn out or tested or however you think you ought to translate that verb. And how you understand the relationship between the, the adversary or Satan and the Lord doing that. The result is David would sin. And I think we have to say there that the Lord knew that that was was the case. I think that's what's entailed when it says in verse one that the Lord incited David against Israel as a consequence of the Lord's kindled anger. And I recognize that doesn't make this any easier to deal with in the end because we're simply now up against what The Bible affirms in several places pretty strongly that the Lord is able to use both the good and the evil acts of human beings for his purposes without diminishing the human responsibility for those deeds themselves. So that what I'm finally saying to you here is that I can't solve for you what I think is a clear teaching of scripture that the divine sovereignty of God doesn't diminish human responsibility. Just as human responsibility doesn't diminish divine sovereignty. The Lord had his purpose in what he incited David to do without compromising David's responsibility for what he did somehow. But the question for me now becomes, so what is that purpose? Ultimately, I mean, the consequence of the Lord's anger being kindled against Israel was that David was stirred up to conduct a census. And David then does it. David gives Joab the command. We get no sense that David even had really wrestled with that. Verse two, the king said to Joab, go through all the tribes of Israel, Dan to Beersheba, number the people that I may know the number of the people. Look at Joab's response in verse three. He says, may the Lord your God, Add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still sees it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? Which is amazing, because this is Joab, right? I mean, even Joab knows there's something wrong here. Which is why then verse 4 is very clear. It says the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders but they do as the king commands in verses 5 to 9. And I won't worry about all the places that are named there. The point is that the route that's traced in verses 5 to 9 is more or less a movement around the entirety of the land of Israel. Joab and his men work their way starting east of the Jordan to the north, then they come down along the coast. There's even the inclusion in verse 7, if you glance at it, of Tyre and the Hivites and the Canaanites, which is interesting because they're not technically part of Israel. What's David counting here? Well, verse 8, they come back to Jerusalem the end of nine months and 20 days. It says, note then verse 9 carefully. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000. And There's debates about how to work with those numbers and and translate and understand them. But the big concern to me here is that David is counting military force. You see, something is something perhaps being hinted that, that, that is off here. We come then to verses 10 to 19. That's the census, 10 to 19 now focusing on the sin which then we run right into another mystery in this chapter, which is what was the actual sin that David knew he had committed here, right? I mean, he says that, verse 10, David has a tender heart here. Ah, It's it's partly David's tender heart that I think makes you read so seriously the language of the Lord inciting David against Israel. The Lord was doing something. <laughs> and then look just how David reacts when that's done. And this is really hard. David has a tender heart. David's heart struck him, verse 10 says, after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And what strikes me there is the degree to which David says he sinned. He sins greatly, he says. He acted very foolish-er, foolishly. The kicker is that the language that David uses here when he asks the Lord to take away the iniquity is the identical language in the Hebrew to what the prophet Nathan said to David the Lord had done after David had repented of his sin against Bathsheba way back in chapter 12. Nathan had said, the Lord has put away your sin. It's the same verb as David is now requesting. Take away the iniquity. That's what David's asking for here. It's the right response. But it puzzles us because we we think, well, what? all he did was count. Like, what? But no, it wasn't just that, evidently. Only here's again a puzzle I can't solve for you. I tried. I spent lots and lots of time trying to solve these things. I couldn't can't solve it for you from this text we're not told what the issue is i don't think there's any reason to see that the numbering in itself was a sin necessarily i mean census taking was commanded on a few other occasions maybe you'd argue well the lord wasn't actually commanding it here david was just being in some way incited towards wanting to do this and maybe that was the sin that he went ahead with it but there's other suggestions for exactly what maybe it was about the census. If it wasn't the census itself, that was the problem. Some people look back at Exodus 30. They see there a text about Moses being told to take a census. And in Exodus 30, Moses has supposed to collect atonement money as he goes around and numbers the people lest, he, lest the people suffer a plague. And well, David doesn't collect atonement money. Maybe David neglected to do a step that was required when a census is taken, but and there's other occasions where a census, a census is commanded and the, the money's not required and it's confusing a bit. And there's, there are good arguments that would suggest that that was just a one-time requirement in Exodus 30. So I don't know. Other people infer that maybe the offense is in David's motivation for the census somehow. That because of the military nature of what David is numbering here. Maybe that reveals that David is preparing for some further conquest that was beyond the limits of what the Lord was allowing here. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's as simple as suggesting that somehow counting the people was an expression of a failure to trust in the Lord's promises to make the people of Israel more numerous than the sand and the seashore I mean, you could look back to what Job's, uh, Joab, excuse me, Joab said when he says, the Lord add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, but why does my Lord the King delight in this? I mean, maybe it's that. Maybe it's something about what David was delighting in as he was conducting the census. You see, I just don't know. I don't know how you could know this any one of those could be it. There could be a few other explanations that could be the right one, which is why I wonder if it might be that the point here, again, is that the narrator doesn't tell us what it was about David's census that caused David to repent because the details of the offense aren't what's important. Maybe we're focused on the wrong thing. That the point isn't that we know precisely what the offense of Israel was, or even what David's sin was in this chapter. Instead, what we know at the conclusion of Samuel is that the people and the king are sinners before the Lord. You see, what if the narrative is intentionally vague on the precise nature of these sins? And why then would it be unless the point is perhaps to draw our attention not to the details of the sin, but to the solution being provided by the Lord. Because here now we start to turn to see how the Lord is working out his purposes in all of this. The mysteries aren't gonna go away. Those, Those purposes will include judgment, yes, but I want us to see this morning as we exit the book of Samuel, that the purposes of the Lord here go way beyond judgment. I'm willing to say even in the, in the purposes of the Lord, inciting David against Israel has a greater purpose than just the judgment against Israel. It's meant to bring us to the conclusion here verse 11, the prophet Gad arrives on the scene. We don't know who, well, Gad was mentioned way back in chapter 22 of 1 Samuel. So he's been around a long time with David, but he's never mentioned in terms of saying anything until now here at the very end. So we hear from Gad, who was a longtime seer in David's court, like a prophet, it would seem. And, and then, Mysteriously, here again, we get a situation that is completely unparalleled in the entire Old Testament. Nowhere else does someone get to choose the punishment that the Lord will deliver for a sin that isn't specified. Or even if it is specified, there's never a choice like this anywhere in the Old Testament. What a mysterious passage this is. Verse 12, go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you, choose one of them. Three years of famine, three months of foes pursuing you, or three days of pestilence. And I think the idea here is that the time frames are different, but the severity is also different in some way. And that probably the the idea is it's roughly equivalent. Just take your pick, David. I have no idea why the Lord offers David that choice, except... (laughs) I think we do need to tread carefully here. We have to keep in mind that this wasn't simply the Lord punishing whatever offense David committed in the census, right? Don't forget that. The census was the means by which the Lord would bring this against Israel for whatever it was that had kindled the Lord's anger in verse one. David then is in distress. Of course he is. He can't pick. All he knows how to say is a critical thing that he says in verse 14. Then David said to Gad, let us, note there that David doesn't say let me, David understands that he and his people are in the same situation here. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord. For his mercy is great. but let me not fall into the hand of man. Which is a stunning moment. Partly it's stunning because you don't feel like that at this moment. I mean, this doesn't so far sound like the Lord's being merciful. But I'm going to suggest to you that this is what's going to drive the conclusion of Samuel. That what we're looking for now in this final chapter of Samuel is the mercy of the Lord. Because here's the greatest king... Israel ever had. And what's he sure of? He's sure that the only hope for sinners like him and his people against whom the Lord's anger has been kindled like it is in this time is the mercy of the Lord. And I I think it's more than that. I mean, you and I tend to look at this and we just think of mercy as like the divine exception to the rule. David sees it as the divine character. He wants it more than... He He's put me in the hand of the Lord. There I'll find mercy. What's what's going on? How will that mercy show itself in the rest of our passage? Well, I think it begins right away in verse 15. You say, really? Because there's this terrible pestilence on Israel. Verse 15, there died of the people... 70,000 men, it says, and debates about the numbers. But the point is, it's awful. But verse 15 says, the pestilence was from the morning until the appointed time. Just an interesting phrase. In other words, I think it was until the time appointed by God for it to end, which we're about to find out is not the precise amount of time that he originally had said it would be, right? The Lord relents. Verse 16, And when the angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It's enough. Now stay your hand. Now, something important is happening in that moment. Something Terrifically important is happening in that precise moment, as we're going to see. But just a insertion here, a parenthesis. I think we read texts like this, we have to be reminded of other passages in the scripture, like Ezekiel 18, verse 32, which says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. Or we have to allow ourselves to think like David, who seems to be alluding to the way the Lord himself defines his nature in Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Despite the terrible pestilence, the consequence of sin that you remember is not specified in this text. We discover that David is right. The Lord has mercy. You might then think, well, it could have been more mercy than this. I mean, 70,000 people die. We have to be very careful talking like that. There's a lot we don't know here. The point is, the Lord relents. The Lord shows mercy, but I'm going to suggest to you that that's only the beginning of that mercy that we're meant to see in this text. Because then we come now to the final verses of Samuel, and I know it's taking a long time to get to it, but verses 20 to 25, we focus now on the sacrifice. I said a moment ago, something really important is happening in that moment when the, the angel of the Lord stops. Note where that angel stops in verse 16. The angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite, it says, which is the connection you need to begin now in verse 18, where Gad enters the scene again. I mean, in verse 17, you get this remarkable moment as David again turns to the Lord and says, as he evidently was seeing the angel who was striking the people, and says, Behold, Lord, I have sinned, I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? There again is a clue that there's things happening behind this text that are not clear to David and are not clear to different characters involved in the story. Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house a beautiful plea in verse 17 though David is somewhat wrong in assuming here the, the innocence of the people but Gad returns he says go up raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite which is where the angel had stopped and you know what a threshing floor is right or you've heard other sermons that talk about like John the Baptist talking about the, the threshing of the wheat the threshing floor where the wheat is, is thrown up into the air after it's been harvested, and as it's in the air, the wind then will blow away, the, the chaff and the grain will fall to the ground of the threshing floor. All through the scriptures, the threshing floor has this connotation of judgment in it. It's in the Psalms, it's in, it's in different books. It's here too. It's here too. Only watch where the judgment ends up. Now, to be threshing floors, to be in the place where the wind would would carry, where the wind would blow the most, the threshing floors tended to be on the higher points of elevation in a town or in an area, which is evidently the case here. That's why it's go up to the threshing floor. We're outside then, you see, we're outside of what was then the city of David or Jerusalem. It's not the same as the borders of, it's not the same as the size of even the, the old city of Jerusalem today, right? Not modern day Jerusalem. We're outside of the city of David and we're on a hill. We're on a mountain. So David listens and he goes up. And Aruna looks down and sees him. And the text points out that Aruna wasn't, wasn't an Israelite. He was a Jebusite. The Jebusites had controlled Jerusalem before David conquered it back in 2 Samuel chapter 5. Anyway, whoever this was, he owned this mountain. Probably it was a pretty important Jebusite. And in verses 21 to 24 right here at the end of Samuel, are entirely devoted to how David purchases this threshing floor from Aruna, And it's strange, right? Like, what's going on at the end of Samuel? Why is this much detail being devoted here to the acquisition of this site at the end of this strange text? This means something. Aruna offers it to David for free. David says no. Verse 24 ends by saying, David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver other things you could say about the significance of this. But here we are at the last words of Samuel. It says, And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted in Israel. And I know this has been a challenging chapter. I want you to see one more complex thing going on here at the end. Because here's the solution, right? Atonements being made. Sacrifices are brought. There are burnt offerings, peace offerings. Burnt offerings in general means Leviticus 1. The purpose is to atone for sin by propitiating the wrath of God symbolically here. Peace offerings again. The peace offerings are celebrating the peace with God and all that flows from that blessing this is somehow pointing to the solution. But I'm going to suggest to you that it's not that these sacrifices themselves were somehow in and of themselves the grounds for atonement. It's not that the peace came with the Lord because of the sacrifices that David offered. That's not how I read it. The pestilence was going to stop at the appointed time. Verse 15 tells us, what I think is the Lord is commanding David to do here what will graphically symbolize the reality that the Lord was turning away his wrath that the Lord was granting his people peace not exactly because David built the altar but because the Lord's mercy is great because the Lord's mercy is great David then does what the Lord commands him but what's the point Why end the entire book of Samuel with this moment? Do you know where we are here? Samuel doesn't spell it out, but I'd argue that the connection is assumed that the readers of Samuel know where this is. It is made entirely explicit in Chronicles, where in 1 Chronicles 21, you get the exact same account again. The account of David building the altar at the threshing floor. The name of Arunah is spelled a different way, but it's the same person. He's a Jebusite. 1 Chronicles 21. Listen to verse 26 of 1 Chronicles 21. It says, And David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. What's that about? You go on in verse 27 of 1 Chronicles 21, it says, Then the Lord commanded the angel, and the angel put his sword back into its sheath. And then 1 Chronicles 22, verse 1 says, Then David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord God. And here the altar of burnt offering for Israel, the threshing floor of Arunah, was no random mountain. You see? It would be the site of the temple, the house of the Lord that Solomon would build. And David had wanted to build it, but he couldn't. And it was the place where burnt offerings would be offered for the ongoing sins of Israel for a long time to come. All of which is meant to say what to the people of Israel? What was the point of all those sacrifices? I mean, I know, maybe I've just been reading too much already of Hebrews getting ready for the fall, but I just see this everywhere now. Why that place? Why all those sacrifices? What is it that the end of Samuel is meant to point to, brothers and sisters? Do you know what else had happened on this mountain? (laughs) Again, it's Chronicles that spells this stuff out. This time it's 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. I'm at the end here. It's one final point. Here's what 2 Chronicles 3, verse 1 says. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. And it says explicitly, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan or Aruna, the Jebusite, Which is where? On Mount Moriah. 2 Chronicles uh, 3, verse 1 says, and I know I'm I'm just stretching your Bible knowledge like crazy this morning, but do you remember Mount Moriah? I mean, do do you realize how many streams of things are coming together in this last four verses of 2 Samuel? What's Mount Moriah? Well, it's Genesis 22. It's where Abraham... The patriarch of Israel had been called upon to sacrifice his son Isaac. Mount Moriah. Only the Lord sent a ram instead. What does Abraham say? Genesis 22, verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place, that place being Mount Moriah, he called it, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. That's where we are at the end of Samuel. How else can the book end, brothers and sisters? The hero of Samuel isn't David. This isn't happening at that exact spot because David knew what to do. The hero the Lord, yes, The Lord responded to the plea for the land. The plague was averted from Israel. But the point seems to me to be that it wasn't David who would fix the sin problem of Israel. It's the Lord who will provide. And 1 Samuel began with Israel needing leadership that could save them from their enemies and from themselves and from the wrath of God. David wasn't it the greatest king Israel ever had could not ultimately save his people from their enemies or from themselves or from the wrath of the Lord. He seems to want to. Verse 17, in our text, David's willing evidently in the end even to die for his sheep. Verse 17 remarkably says, but the point is he can't. David understood the role that the king was to play, but it wasn't his to carry it out. You see, that would be the work of David's greater son. Because I think the point at the very end of Samuel is that the Lord will provide. And that it wouldn't be far from Mount Moriah, from the place where the temple was built. In fact, on the occasion of one of the great sacrifices in the temple. Not far from the threshing floor of Arunah, where the judgment falls. And where it is now that we leave David as he offers these commanded sacrifices. It wouldn't be far from that place that the perfect and complete sacrifice for the sins of the whole world would be made. And that happens When the Christ, the one Paul describes as descended from David, according to the flesh, when the Christ would hang on a wooden cross, the inscription over his head reading, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.